Since you have your copy of God's Word, if you'll be turning with me to Matthew 26. We're going to be in Matthew 26 uh, again this morning. It seems like it's a, these passages are a long time coming. Um, right now, we're on track to finish the Gospel of Matthew at the end of June, after about three years of walking through this book together. And I've learned so much uh, from walking through this that... Uh, so many things that I've read, and even today, as I have studied to prepare this message, uh, w- w- there's so much here, we're just going to scratch the surface of what's here. But the Scripture is inexhaustible. It's impossible to preach a sermon on any text that's going to fully exhaust the meaning of that text. So I'm not going to try to do that this morning, but I do want to share some things with you that really stood out to me. Uh, I-, I came to faith at five years old. Uh, I was raised in a Christian home. I was baptized when I was nine and have heard the Bible preached my whole life, have read the Bible. My parents read the Bible to me. And after now 29 years of being a Christian, um, I still learn so much every time. And so I just want to share some of that with you. Some of it may be things that you're already familiar with, but This is a familiar text. If you've spent any time in church or you've been to Easter services or things like that, you've probably heard this story of the Last Supper here. And I I want us to to look at at a a few things. So let's read the text together. If you found your way there, we're going to be in chapter 26, and we're going to look this morning at verses 17 through 30. So if you found your way, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it with you, new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You may be seated. So this is a familiar passage, especially uh, to us. My, uh, my parents visited yesterday, and I told my dad that I was preaching this text. And, and he said, so you're telling me after taking the Lord's Supper every Sunday and, and reading these kind of things that uh, you're still learning things about the Lord's Supper? And I said, yes, I've learned a lot of things this week. And I have more questions uh, now than I did when I started. The title of the message this morning is an apocalypse for dinner. An apocalypse for dinner. 
What is an apocalypse? The word apocalypse, we normally think of something bad that's happening. That can be the case. But the word apocalypse means uncovering. Uh, The book of Revelation, for instance, at the end of Scripture, is technically called the Apocalypse of John because it is a revelation or an unveiling of who Jesus is in the end. But I want to make an argument this morning that in this text we also see many things revealed, uh, many things that are fulfilled, too many things, again, for us to discuss this morning. But I want to try to make some connections for you. The Bible is a Jewish book. Uh, It comes from an Eastern Jewish culture. And a lot of times, uh, we as Westerners, and and the majority of of us have not grown up in a Jewish background, uh, take for granted that the original readers of these letters were Jewish people that, uh, that carried with them a lot of Jewish culture in the way that they read the Bible. And we don't do that. And so there's several things that I want us to see this morning that a Jewish reader would recognize immediately as kind of assumed, but we probably would not recognize it because we have not grown up in that culture. And I think it's important for us to understand Scripture in the context of the culture in which it was written. The question is not always so much how does this apply to us, but the question is how did the people that read it the first time understand it whenever they read it? because we want to understand it the way they understood it. So at this dinner, there's an apocalypse. There's a revelation. Jesus is unpacking uh, things that the Jews have practiced for hundreds of years, and he's doing that. The other thing is, this is a a very uh, intimate, uh, quiet moment in the ministry of Jesus. We've seen where in the beginning he was teaching, he wasn't very public about his ministry, and then uh, as he essentially declared that he was the Messiah officially. Then he started being bold about it because he knew that that was going to kind of arouse the anger of his enemies. And he's come in triumphantly into Jerusalem now, and everybody's shouting that he's the son of David, and even the, even the little children are proclaiming him to be the Messiah, and that's stirred up his enemies. And as we've seen, they've been plotting against him. And now we know behind the scenes of this story, Judas has already been going and has been working on betraying Jesus, and so he's been secretly doing this uh, in the background, and the disciples weren't aware of it. But here at, at the Last Supper is this quiet place. They're, up, they're going up into this upper room of this house. It's just them. It's just Jesus and his disciples, and this is one of his last experiences that he has with them before the cross. And there's no Romans knocking at the door. The Pharisees aren't trying to kick the door in. This is just a quiet moment for him to share this meal with his disciples and speak basically the summary of his whole ministry. Uh, This is the graduation ceremony of the disciples. They've walked with him at this point for three and a half years. They've heard his teaching. They've seen his miracles. They've even performed miracles themselves at this point on his behalf. And this this meal is, is the celebration of, I have now taught you everything that I need to teach you in order for you to follow me. And so now we're going we're to celebrate. So there's three things that, that I want us to see mainly in this text. The first thing that I want you to see in this context is a providential preparation. A providential preparation. Look, look uh, again with me at verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. 
The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So why is this a providential preparation? There's things that were prepared here. The first thing that we see is a prepared meal. So we have to recognize as they're coming into the city, and as, as we've learned around this time, around Passover, about two million Jews would come into the city. So a lot of, they're renting houses, and uh, it's a very busy time. There were markets that opened up just to be able to sell lambs for the sacrifices. There's all kinds of special food and special decorations and different things that are happening. And so it's a very busy time. And yet Jesus and his disciples walk into the city with nothing. Sometimes we forget that. Uh, notice they had to go and use someone else's house. Why? Because none of them had homes that were available there for them to do this. Uh, Jesus' ministry was a ministry of faith. He was, he was always going around. We know that they had some money because we know that Judas was in charge of the money bag. We don't know where that came from, but we're assuming that some people uh, were helping to meet their practical needs. But we have to remember it's it's not as though uh, Jesus and his disciples were just staying in nice hotels all the time or traveling on nice animals or wearing nice clothing. Uh, they were a very basic people, and so they have to prepare this meal now from nothing. They didn't even have a room to have it in, let alone any of the supplies and things that were required for them to set up for Passover. And so there has to be a prepared meal here. This is Passover is, uh, is very in-depth, far more about it than we can go into now, but uh, the requirements for Passover are extremely specific of the kind of items that you need to get and the way they need to be arranged and the order in which things need to be done and the quality of them. Um, even now, if you go to the grocery store to like the ethnic foods aisle, there's usually a kosher aisle that has a kosher section. You, you, you might not know this, but there's actually foods that are kosher and then there's foods that are kosher for Passover. That's actually two different categories because the requirements for Passover in some cases are even different from regular kosher foods. And so even today in 2022, it's that specific. And so this is not like they can just uh, run down to Ingalls and, you know, grab a salad and a roasted chicken and have dinner. That's not what they're preparing for. This is a very specific type of meal that they're preparing for. And remember, this is probably the third or fourth time that the, that the disciples had had this meal with Jesus because they had it every year on Passover. All of the Jews did. So it's a prepared meal. Here, here's an interesting thing about the meal that I will share with you that, that I thought was... Um, really incredible as I was studying this. So the, the Passover occurs on a certain day of the month every year. Uh, and it's, it's not always on a certain day of the week, but it's a certain day of the month. However, there, in the year that Jesus died, the Passover uh, occurred uh, right concurrent to a Sabbath. So for instance, on Friday evening, Shabbat or Sabbath begins and they observe the Sabbath for a full day. But every once in a while, the Passover date will line up with a Sabbath day, and you basically get a double Sabbath. So then you're practicing Sabbath essentially through the whole weekend. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. Why did the Jews have the first Sabbath? They had the first Sabbath because Moses was commanded in the Ten Commandments to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. That was a commandment that they had to set aside that day in the same way that God had rested from his work in creation on the seventh day, that they were to set aside the seventh day as a day of rest also uh, in honoring God in the Ten Commandments. That was part of the Mosaic Covenant that God made with his people, is this is a requirement for you. Why did they have Passover? Passover is a part of, uh, excuse me, 
Passover is a part of the Mosaic Covenant because you remember in Egypt is when Passover was instituted when the 10th uh, plague came, the angel of death came through and killed all the firstborn except for those who had the blood of the lamb applied to their doors and then it passed over them. That's where Passover comes from. I was mistaken in saying the original Sabbath was actually part of the Adamic Covenant with Adam because it was in creation that God did this. The point is this. When Jesus... Uh, becomes the past, the true Passover lamb, he is not only meeting the full requirements of the Mosaic covenant of God's people in, e- in Israel and providing for their sins, but he is also fulfilling the Adamic co- covenant all the way back to Genesis when God rested on the seventh day. If Jesus would have died a year before or a year after this time, he would not have been able to fulfill both covenants. But because he was able to die during this span of two or three days... He is able to fulfill every covenant all the way back to Adam. So every promise that God has made is fulfilled in Jesus. And so why is it important that this meal was prepared? It had to be at this time in order for him to fulfill everything that God uh, had uh, prophesied and had ordained even in the past in his covenants. But it's not just a prepared meal, but there's a prepared man. You notice that in the text he says, Go into the city to a certain man. He doesn't name who this man is. And in the other Gospels, they even give us more details about what this man's going to be doing. How are you going to be able to identify him? They never give the man's name. The disciples may not even know what the man's name is. Jesus just tells him, you're going to go into the city and you're going to see a man doing this. And that's the man that I want you to go and talk to. And all you're going to do is tell him, uh, Jesus needs a place, he needs to stay at your house with his disciples to have the Passover, and he's just going to say, okay, and just bring you upstairs, and it's going to be fine. I don't know about you, but I don't mind inviting people into my home on occasion, but I probably wouldn't let somebody invite themselves to my house if they were a stranger, and they just said, I'm coming home and having lunch with your family today, even though we've never met. That would be a strange thing, but apparently, this was a prepared man. God had prepared this man providentially, for this particular moment. So again, two million Jews are coming in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's packed. There's no room in the inn, right? Just like in the beginning. And yet there's a space that God has set aside for Jesus and his disciples already. They didn't have to worry about finding a room. It was already set up before they even got there. Uh, one commentator said it, it, one of the reasons why this may have been mysterious is so that Judas did not hear who the name of the man was where they would be meeting. Because as Judas was actively betraying Jesus, he might have been able to go then to the Pharisees and say, this is the house they're going to be at. You guys can come and get them while they're isolated from everybody. And so that may be one of the reasons why Jesus concealed uh, who the identity of this man was is, is to prevent him from being betrayed ahead of time. Notice here too, Jesus' willingness to die. But what, what is it that he told them to go tell this man? The first thing he says is, my time is near. Now, when he says my time is near, what that means is, it's time for me to die. That, that's what that means. So Jesus has a willingness. He is not caught off guard by anything that's happening at this point. There, the, the, the room being open is not a surprise. Judas betraying him is not a surprise. Them coming to him in the garden and arresting him later is not a surprise. Him being beaten is not a surprise. Him going to the cross and dying is not a surprise. He's not surprised about anything. He's known from the beginning. The Scripture says that before he was born as a man, when he was the Word eternally, that all things that were made were made through him. In other words, this is all his plan anyways. 
How did he know that this man was going to be able to bring him into the home? Because he actually created that guy. And he created that guy for the specific reason of being able to have this house. Now, now, think, now just think about that for a second. Before time, God planned for this man to be born, to have whatever job he was going to have, to be able to buy the house that he was going to buy, so that the house would be open thousands of years later for Jesus and his disciples to come into. Now, think, think about how minute of a detail that is, that none of that is by accident that his house was exactly in the place that God decided before that man was even born, before anything was even made, before the earth was even made. God planned for that house to be there by that man at a certain time, and Jesus knew all about it and, and was able to do that. So think about the details in your life. How many of those are coincidental and accidental? How, the, the, the things that you have, the abilities that you have, the friendships that you have, the influence that you have, all these kind of things— None of it is accidental. God has a purpose for all of it, and he did for this man that we don't even know. But he was actually a really important part of God's plan, and we have no idea what his name is. But Jesus was willing to die. He knew that this was going to happen, and that's why he told him, I'm getting ready to die. Let's set up for Passover. And we see the sovereign providence of God there again in this whole situation of how all of this was prepared beforehand, before they even came to Jerusalem. So God used the disciples to prepare a place for Jesus, but he had already ordained the circumstances. They were just the means that he was using to carry out his will. This is how our responsibility and God's sovereignty work together. God has the plan. We don't make the plan. God makes the plan. But he uses people to carry out that plan. That's our job, is obedience and faithfulness. We don't have to have it all figured out. We don't have to know the future. We just walk in obedience and we trust that, that he is bringing about the plan that he has laid out from, from the beginning of time. We see, that doing, we see that happening here with Jesus, but it happens with all of our lives. God has a plan for all of our lives. So what about your life? The text is showing that, that nothing happens by accident. Is it a coincidence that you're hearing the gospel today? Is it because maybe God is opening your eyes to see the truth about Jesus? I can't open anybody's eyes. That's something that God has to do. But again, God uses means. The Scripture says, how will anyone hear if there's no one preaching to them? Somebody has to share the gospel. That's part of the process of a person coming to Christ. And so we see a providential preparation here in the beginning. The second thing I want you to see is a puzzling prophecy. A puzzling prophecy. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. So we see that the betrayal is announced here. This is the first time that Jesus finally uh, shows them, right? When we talk about an apocalypse, what is he revealing? He's revealing, here's how. Now, he's told them, I'm, I'm going to be taken captive. I'm going to be crucified by the Romans. So they knew that was going to happen, but they didn't know how it was going to happen until now. And now Jesus is saying, here's how it's going to happen. How am I going to end up in Roman custody? It's because one of you is going to sell me out. That's how it's going to happen. And so he's letting them know this. Uh, the early church father, Oregon, had a, had a couple good thoughts on this. Um, in the beginning, 
uh, Wesley read Psalm 23 and, and Oregon pointed out that Jesus was fulfilling Psalm 23 when God prepared a table before him in the presence of his enemies. You think about that? It says that he anointed his head with oil. If you remember right previous to this, there was a time where the woman came in and she anointed him with oil, with the precious perfume in doing that. And so right here we see Psalm 23, hundreds of years prior, talking about how he was going to have a table prepared for him in the presence of his enemies. And here Jesus is sitting down with Judas at the table eating a meal. He also pointed out that it's interesting that if the disciples had clean consciences, why would they think that they could be the betrayer? That's something that I had never really thought about before. It says that they were deeply grieved by this, and they were all asking, is it me? Now, if you've never thought about betraying somebody, if you've never been tempted to do that, then why would you be concerned that it's you? It's obviously not you. It's like, it's like I tell, tell my kids, you know, my, my brother or my sister, they insulted me and said something about me. Well, is it true? No. Okay, then why are you concerned about what liars say? I, I have no concern about if somebody lies about me. If that person's a liar, then I wouldn't expect them to tell the truth. That doesn't make sense. And so for all of them to say, is it me, makes you wonder about their own conscience. Do they think, is there something in me that would betray Jesus? And maybe in my heart, there have been times in the past where I have thought about walking away or doing these things. Remember previous in Jesus' ministry when he's preaching things, there are times where many people leave, and he even asked the disciples, are you going to leave too? Right? And Peter speaks for them and says, where are we going to go? You're the one that has the words of life. But it doesn't mean they didn't think about it. And we forget sometimes the disciples are human men. They're not divine. They're sinners just like we are. And so when Jesus is calling, calling them out on this and saying, one of you is going to betray me, there's that self-examination there of, have I really been 100% committed to Jesus this whole time? And apparently the answer for a lot of them was no. Uh, apparently there was some concern there that uh, maybe Jesus sees something in my heart that I don't see. Um, we know the scripture tells us our hearts are deceitfully wicked, that we can't even understand how wicked our own hearts are. And maybe they were recognizing that in this moment of maybe Jesus sees something in me that I don't see in myself. What about your conscience? Is your conscience clean this morning? You can, you can try to convince yourself that you're okay with God, but when you lay your head down at night and sit in the quiet and in the darkness, is that really what you believe? That, that's part of how we, how we know uh, whether we're real or not. Sometimes we wonder, am I really a Christian? Am, am I really following Jesus? Am I struggling with that? And I'm not saying that if you're a real Christian, you ever have doubts. We all experience those things from time to time, just like the disciples did, and as we'll see in the future, they do. But we've got to be honest with ourselves and, I, and ask ourselves, do I really, do I really think that I'm, that I'm okay? Do I really think that things are okay between me and God when nobody else is looking? Because he, he sees, right? And this is what they were afraid of. They've seen several times at this point where Jesus has called the Pharisees out on their thoughts, where he said, this is what you're thinking, and he's answering the questions that they're asking in their minds. So they know Jesus can read minds. He knows what our thoughts are. And when they laid their head down at night, the question there is, is uh, I'm following this guy. Like, what if this is for nothing? What if, what if I follow him and he, he's... He's just a magician or something. And sometimes Christians still wonder that. And so we have to be honest with ourselves if, if, if that's where we're at. 
because any of us can put on a show and we can come here for an hour on Sunday morning and look like the most spiritual person and have all the Bible knowledge and have everything. I can stand up here and be a preacher and be lost. There, there are, are men, uh, I was just reading this, Elias Keach, I was reading this week, he was converted under his own preaching. He preached the gospel and then got down in front and gave his life to Christ because he realized that he wasn't saved he, because he didn't really believe what he was even preaching. And so we can't assume about anybody, but Jesus knows. He knows our hearts. He knows whether we're right with him or not. And so we can deceive ourselves. We can deceive others. We can't deceive him. The disciples followed Jesus faithfully for years, but they still had their doubts. Even, even at this time, they still had their doubts after everything that they had seen. So we see the betrayal announced, but then we see the betrayer accused. So Jesus uh, was giving Judas the opportunity to uh, repent, one scholar said. This, all right, Judas, this is, a, this is the, the last opportunity, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it out in front of everybody, and this is your chance. This is your chance to step up and say, you know what, Jesus, it actually was me. I had a conversation the other day, and I talked about selling you out, and I was wrong. And, and, and I need your forgiveness. This was Judas' opportunity. Just the same way as all of you have an opportunity this morning. Every time you hear the gospel, you have an opportunity of you can either believe this or you cannot believe this. You can turn from your old life, turn from your sins, and turn to Christ and walk in obedience, or you cannot. I can't make that decision for anybody. None of us can make that decision for anybody else. That's simply between us and God. And here, even though Jesus knows Judas' heart, even though he knows what he's done. Judas thinks that he's kind of uh, kept it low-key and that the disciples, nobody really knows what he's doing. And Jesus knows, and still, he's still giving him an opportunity. Why? Because he's long-suffering. Um, that, that's part of the good news, by the way, is that God is long-suffering. Uh, if he wasn't, if he, if, he suffer, if he was suffering like we do, if he was impatient like we are, uh, he, this whole world would have been destroyed a long, long time ago. Uh, all of the, the benefits and blessings and things that we enjoy are a result of God's long-suffering. It's not because we're a great nation or because we're really moral people and we always do the right thing. That's not the case at all by God's standard. It's simply because of his patience that he's saying, I am waiting, I am giving amount of time. When we look at the end times, part of what we can all agree on there is that Jesus is saying, that the Father is waiting to send him until everyone has had an opportunity to come in. All kinds of people, so that there's no unreached people groups, there's no anything that everybody has an opportunity. And then, once everybody has an opportunity, and they've may either decided like Judas, of I'm going to sell Jesus out for the things of this world, or they decide to follow him like the disciples did, then the judgment comes. And that way, no one has an excuse. Romans 1 says, no one has an excuse. Everybody's going to stand before God, and they can't say, well, I just didn't know, and if somebody would have told me, then I would have believed, and, and so I just need a second chance. There are no second chances. The, right now is your second chance. He saw the, harden, the hardness of Judas' heart. So, so think about, this is a man that you saw heal the sick people, touch the lepers, went... Uh, uh, the woman caught in adultery, like the broken people in the world, you saw the tenderness that he had, the love that he had for sinners and for broken people, even people that hated him, the love that he had. I mean, this is, this, this is the same one that as he is on the cross is praying to God and asking for the forgiveness of the ones nailing him to the cross. 
And I don't know about you. I mean, like, I've forgiven people before in my life by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not on that level. I'm just going to be honest with you. If, some, if somebody is in the middle of crucifying me, the last thought on my mind is, God, please don't hold this against this person. That's, that's not what I'm going to think. And yet, that is the nature of Jesus. How much does he love sinners? He even loves the ones that nail him to the cross. He even intercedes on their behalf. He loves sinners. And in this moment, now remember, they're in a room together, sitting at a table together. We're not talking across the room. He's looking Judas in the eyes and knows that Judas' heart is wrong and still gives him an opportunity. And Judas looks him back in the eye and says, is it I? And Jesus says, you've said so yourself. In other words, I'm not accusing you, but basically you're accusing yourself. And just imagine the hardness of your heart. Some of you may have never experienced that before, but some of you may have been in a place in your life where you, where you were face-to-face with somebody that hated you. A lot of us have never experienced that. The, 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 the look in a person's eye when they have hate in their heart towards someone else it is a terrifying thing. And for Jesus, in his compassion, to, to allow Judas to look him and lie to him in the face, knowing that he knows Judas' heart. Again, Judas was one of the disciples. He knew that Jesus could see him, and he lied to him anyways to his face, even though he knew that, Je- that Jesus knew the truth. Think about how hard your heart has to be. One of the other gospel writers says that it was at this time that Satan entered him. Right? At, at this time, Judas had completely given himself over. He literally just made himself a, a vessel for the devil and, and had just completely, any hope for Judas at this point was gone. It, it was over for him. So you can hide your sin from other people, but you can't hide it from Jesus. Even Judas couldn't. Uh, one of the commentators said, uh, you can come to church, hear sound preaching, volunteer for Christian work, support Christian causes, even partake of the Lord's Supper, and still perish if you are not truly born again. And perish Judas did. Judas is in hell today. The third and the last thing that I want you to see here is a positive promise. Positive promise. So we saw in the providential preparation, Jesus is revealing, right, the apocalypse. He's revealing that God had this all planned from the beginning. In the puzzling prophecy, we see that Jesus is revealing the betrayer for the first time, that there's going to be this betrayal that happened. And now we look at a positive promise. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So what is the positive promise here? One, there's a lasting sustenance. A lasting sustenance. This is, this is uh, one of those things. I've been excited to share this with you this week. At the beginning of that passage, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. Now, for most of you in here that have grown up in a Western mindset and don't understand how this works in Judaism, you just read past that, and when you hear the word blessing, you just think about a prayer, like when we pray over our food. It was more than that. Okay, because 
there are specific prayers that are said at specific times of the meal. So Jesus here is saying a prayer that the Jews have said for hundreds of years whenever they would, whenever they would observe this meal. Okay? When they would bless the bread, it's a specific blessing. And in English it says, Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Now what does that mean that he brings forth bread from the earth? Well, one of the ways is in the Old Testament. Remember in the wilderness, they go out into the desert here. There's no food out there. And they start complaining. God, did you just bring us out here in the wilderness to let us die? In Egypt, we had bread, we had food, we had everything. And now we're out here and we just got rocks and dirt and, uh, and heat. That's about all we've got out here. And Jesus provided something for them called manna. And it came up with the dew of the ground and they were able to gather it up and eat it. And it was sustenance for them that whenever they ate it, it gave them life. It allowed them to be life. It was bread that came out of the earth. So then for hundreds and thousands of years now, even today, this Friday, thousands of Jewish families are going to gather for the Sabbath and they're going to pray over the bread. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Now, what else do we see that's bread, though? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So when Jesus prayed this blessing and broke this bread and hands it to them, he says, take, eat, this is my body. What is he saying? He's not just saying the bread represents body, my body. He's saying, I am the bread that the Lord brings out of the earth that will give you life. I am the one that comes out. Jesus answers the question of manna. If you look at it, uh, the word manna means what is it? That's what they called it because they saw it come out of the ground. They're like, there's no ovens around here. Where did this come from? And so they called it, what is it? That was the name of it, which is manna. Jesus answers the question of what it is. What is the bread that the Lord brings out of the earth to provide life for his people? The answer is Jesus. The answer was Jesus in Exodus and in Numbers. When they, when they were coming out, it's always been Jesus. This is part of the apocalypse of the dinner, right? Part of the apocalypse of the, of the Lord's Supper. There's nothing magical under this cloth about the bread and the juice that we're going to take. But when you eat that bread today, as a Christian, you have to recognize when he says, take and eat, this is my body, he's not just saying, I'm, like, I'm kind of like bread, that bread gives you life. He's saying, no, from the very beginning, what God has provided for his people in order for them to be alive, was Christ all along. It was always him. Even thousands of years before he came to the earth and was born, he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus is revealing this to his disciples. You've prayed this prayer your entire life, every Friday night, and now you understand what it means. Now you understand the fulfillment of it. The gospel is extremely poetic, but it's not mythological. Uh, in the same way that, that, that God brought bread out of the earth in the wilderness for God's people of Israel, he has brought Christ out of the earth for our salvation. What do you have to trust in for forgiveness of sins this morning that is better than what God has offered you in Christ? What's better than that? The God of the universe, before the foundation of the world, wanted to save a people and put breadcrumbs, pun intended, all throughout the Bible that was going to lead the Jewish people to the true bread. 
And now he is right in front of them breaking this bread and saying, this bread that the Jewish people have looked for all along of salvation, the bread of life, is right in front of you. And that I'm going to be broken for you so that you may have life. Because when I come out of the earth, I will bring life to all of those for whom I've died. All of them will receive resurrection power. Next, we see uh, lasting security. So there's lasting sustenance there, but then lasting security. And this is a little bit theological, but I think this is some important observations that we need to make in this text. When the Bible teaches doctrine, we need to look at the doctrine and not just the story. This is how we get doctrine. We don't want to just make it up. We need to get it from Scripture. Jesus is showing us something here in this passage about atonement. So he says, uh, when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's two things that I want us to see about atonement here in this passage of what Jesus is talking about. The first is that atonement is limited in its effort. But what, what do I mean by that? Around this time of Passover they estimate there was around 250,000 lambs that would be slain in the temple around this time. The, the blood from these 250,000 lambs, that's a quarter of a million lambs. That's a lot of lambs. The blood was so much that it ran out of the temple, uh, the temple building and it ran down into the Kidron River and would dye the river red every year with, with the blood that, that uh, came out of the temple from all of these lambs. And do you know that out of a quarter of a million lambs a year that were sacrificed because God said without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins? Did you know that for the hundreds of years that Israel sacrificed 250,000 lambs in the temple, that not one sin was ever forgiven because of any of those lambs? It didn't matter if it was a million lambs. It didn't matter if it was 10 million lambs. It didn't matter if it was centuries of lambs. Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins because none of those lambs were perfect. The only lamb that would be able to be perfect enough to actually be acceptable to God was God's lamb. It was the one that he was pleased with. Which is why the, the, the psalmist says it pleased the father to crush his son. It pleased him to crush him. Why? Because he knew this is the only way. And we see the same thing today. You can practice all the religion you want to practice, and it will not forgive one sin. It doesn't matter if you, if you do all the right things and everybody thinks you're the best person in the world and you're the most faithful church person or you're a pastor or you're whatever. None of that stuff matters because forgiveness of sins only comes one way. It only came one way through Israel, and it only comes one way for us today, and it's the same way. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's the only one. But it's limited in its effect. One of the things you have to notice about the context here is when Jesus explains this to them, Judas is gone. After he has this interaction with Judas, Judas leaves. So now you've got 11 disciples in the room instead of 12. Well, what does that mean? That means that he's only speaking to the faithful here. He's not speaking to a mixed group. So when he talks about this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins... Notice the word that he uses there. He doesn't say that it's poured out for all for the forgiveness of sins. He says that it's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
That's the word that Jesus uses. Well, what does that mean? What that means is, is that in the same way that God had chosen Israel out of the nations and said, you're a small nation, you're not powerful, you're not a big deal, but I chose you and made you my nation, and I am providing you with the law, and I am providing you with Messiah, and I am providing you with atonement, okay? The atonement for Israel never applies to the Canaanites. The Canaanites did not receive manna in the wilderness. The Canaanites did not get water out of the rock in the wilderness. The Canaanites were not delivered from their enemies the same way that Israel was delivered from its enemies. God has a people, and for those people, he provides atonement. And so what we see here, when Jesus is talking about his blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, again, who is he talking to? Who's the audience? The audience is the 11 faithful disciples that believe. And why is that important? It's important because Jesus is saying, Judas is in hell today, not just because of his rebellion, but because he wasn't in the room. He, he wasn't one of the ones. We, we, you go read John 17, right? I have not lost any that you have given to me except for the son of perdition so that the prophecy might be fulfilled. He's talking about Judas there. Jesus is saying, I've only ever lost one person that followed me, and that was Judas because he was created for that purpose. And so it is limited in effort. And then it is limitless in effect. What does it mean that it's limitless in effect? The effect that the atonement has, this is the positive promise. This, this is something that you can take away today, I hope. Jesus said he would not drink that Passover wine specifically until the end, until the fulfillment of the kingdom. Notice what he says there. Again, we have to look carefully at his words. I say to you, who? The 11 disciples. I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. How does Jesus know for sure that the 11 disciples are going to drink it with him in the new kingdom? It's because the atonement is limitless in its effect. Because Jesus died for them, there is nothing that they can do that will undo what Jesus has done for them. There is no amount of disobedience that will discredit Christ's perfect obedience. That's what we call eternal security. And so if you're in here this morning and you're trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation and not for your works, and you're turning from your sin and and you're pursuing obedience and holiness in him because of your love for him, you need to have assurance of your salvation today because it's not about you. You did not accomplish your salvation. You did not die for your own sins, and your disobedience does not cancel out Jesus' obedience. Jesus' obedience is so much that there's no amount of sin that you can do that even touches his obedience. He has perfect obedience. So unless you have perfect disobedience, you're not not even going to be close. And thankfully, thanks to common grace, we're not as wicked as we could be, if we're honest, because we're restrained by God even in our own wickedness. The promise of the wine is a promise of eternal security. So not only when you take this bread in just a moment, Christian, do you remember that that bread is representative of the one that the bread of life that Jesus brought out of the earth for you that gives you life. But you also need to remember when you take that juice this morning, the fruit of the vine there that we take, that that is your eternal security. Not the juice itself, but it's a reminder that I can't undo the blood of Jesus. I can't unsacrifice him. God has already done it. He has already declared him. 
He's already declared my debt, debt paid. How do I know that my debt is paid? Because of the resurrection of Jesus. And why? Because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, which means everybody who is under the curse of sin stays dead. They do not resurrect from the dead. The reason why Jesus resurrected from the dead is because there was no more debt to pay. That's the reason why he resurrected. And that's the reason why I'm going to resurrect. And the reason why you in here who are believing are going to resurrect is because you have no debt either. So we will spend a little time on the ground, probably, depending on when the Lord comes back. Our bodies will anyways. But we have a place in the Lord. In the same way that the room was prepared for Jesus and his disciples, Jesus said, I'm going to my Father's house to prepare a place for you. And then I'm going to come and receive you unto myself. And what does he say? If it were not so, I would have told you. In other words, I promise you that you're going to get there. And he's good for his word because I don't know about you, but I don't have anybody else that's risen from the dead to believe in. He's good for it. So I'm going to take his word for it because he proved it. There's a lot of people that talk a good game. There's a lot of religions out there that sound great and they make all these good promises and all that. Those guys are all dead. Or their whole religion's dead. It's like an ancient religion now. Nobody even practices it. Or, or there's no way to authenticate it. You look at the prophecies here. You go back in prophecies. Now you got churches. These church, I'll, I'll try not to meddle too much, but you got churches where people, I got the gift of prophecy. I've got a word from you that I want to share from you from the Lord. And it sounds like a, foot, a fortune cookie or a, or a horoscope. Right? And the Lord told me you're going to meet somebody today that's going to be a great encouragement to you. Oh, wow, that just, I, feel, I feel so uplifted in my spirit. That's not a prophecy. That's, that's like an educated guess. Like, are you going to go outside of your house today and see somebody? And yet with Scripture, it's you're going to go to this place at this time. There's going to be a man doing this thing, and you're going to say these exact words to him, and this is what's going to happen. That's a prophecy because you can't mess that up. If any part of that doesn't work, it's not real. How could the Bible be written by a bunch of men where Jesus is explaining that he was the bread in numbers? How could a bunch of men come together and write something like that? That's, that's crazy. This is how we know it's from God. This is how you have assurance this morning. His word is true. The last thing I, I want you to see about this lasting security is we're talking about an actual atonement and not a potential atonement. And again, I, I'm not going to go really into depth on this, but one of the things that you hear preached in a lot of our Baptist churches here that I have a big problem with is what's called a potential atonement, which is basically, uh, you know, Jesus is like, he's got all the grace that he needs floating around out here to forgive a bunch of people, and you could be saved, but uh, it's really kind of up to you. Like, Jesus is willing to save you, but are you willing? And then, you know, he's got some extra that he'll kind of put on you, and it's this kind of economic thing. Now, of course, being, being Baptist, they're, they're uh, very anti-Catholic in general, so they wouldn't like this comparison. But the Catholic Church has an equivalent to this called the Treasury of Merit, which is this big treasure chest up in the sky of all the good works that Jesus did, and the only ones allowed to give it out is the Pope and the Church. And every time you show up to Mass, and every time you pray Hail Mary, and every time you do it, you get a little bit of credit in your account out of the Treasury of Merit. That's a potential atonement. Roman, the gospel according to Roman Catholicism is this. Jesus died so that you can have a chance. When you get baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, your original sins removed, and then you're racking up sins, and you're trying to cancel them out along the way with the sacraments. And whatever you don't burn off, you'll burn off in purgatory for a couple hundred thousand years unless somebody prays you out and gets points for you 
and then you end up going into heaven. Unless you do a sin that the church doesn't like in particular, in which case you die and go to hell immediately, no matter how good of a Catholic you are. I don't know about you guys, but that's not good news. That, that's, I don't think Jesus died to give me a shot. And I think if Jesus died to give them a shot, he can't make them a promise like that. He can't say, you will be with me in the kingdom if it's up to them. He can't do that. So we don't believe in a potential atonement of you might, you might get a shot. We believe in an actual atonement. What does that mean? That means when Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood, sins were forgiven then. My sins were forgiven over 2,000 years ago at that time. Now, how is all that applied thousands of years later? Okay, there's some mystery there. I'm not going to try to explain all that. But the reality is, is the only way that Jesus can say for sure that anyone is going to be saved is if salvation is totally up to him and he guarantees it. And that is our hope. That, that's good news. If you want good news, the actual real forgiveness of sins to where when you die, it's not about how good you are and how many points that you get is very good news. And that's what we should be excited about this morning. And then finally, that last verse there, this is something I hope will be an encouragement to your heart. After singing a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. Now, I'm not going to sing this morning because that's not the gift that God's given me. And I also don't speak Hebrew, so I can't sing it in Hebrew, which is what they would have done. Again, for a Jewish person, they know what this is. They know what the hymn is. That's, that, that was one of the, the questions I had when I was looking at this. What's the hymn that they sang? Well, we know what it is. It's called the Hillel. And it's Psalms 113 through 118. So I'm going to read that. But I want you to think about this, okay? This is Jesus and his disciples sitting around the table singing what I'm about to read to you uh, shortly before he goes to the cross. Now, mind you, these psalms are written hundreds of years before Jesus was born on the earth. So you ask yourself as I read this, who are these psalms talking about, and what does it have to do with what we've learned over the last couple weeks? The Hallel starts out, it says, Blessed are you, uh, Lord, Master of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to recite the Hallel. And then in Psalm 113, Praise the Lord. Praise all servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is enthroned on high, who humbles Himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He raises the poor from dust and lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. When Israel went forth from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? O mountains, that you skip like rams? O hills, like lambs? Tremble, O, or, o earth, before the Lord, before the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of water. Now to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nations say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. 
They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But as for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. Praise the Lord. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. The cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, save my life. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed when I said, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for his benefits towards me? I shall lift the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Oh, Lord, surely I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your handmaid. You have loosed my bonds. To you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, all nations, laud him, all peoples. For his loving kindness is great towards us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. O let Israel say, his loving kindness is everlasting. O let the house of Aaron say, his loving kindness is everlasting. O let those who fear the Lord say, his loving kindness is everlasting. For my distress, I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me, yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die but live and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. 
Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let's pray. Father, we see, even from that text, your plan, that Jesus is the gate of righteousness that we go through, that he is the festival sacrifice that is in our place, that while you severely disciplined him on our behalf, you did not give him over to death. Lord, we see so much fulfillment in there, and we know that that night as they were praying that Jesus knew that all of that was being fulfilled in that very moment. Lord, encourage our hearts this morning from your word, to see your sovereign plan in in the life of Jesus and for our salvation, and to know that you have a plan for each one of us. And Lord, I just ask today that as we are challenged to respond to you, that each one of us would do it with sincerity, that you would help us to properly examine ourselves and ask the question, are we going to be like Judas and look you in the eye and reject you this morning? Or are we going to be like the disciples who are going to follow you like John did, even all the way to the cross? Those are the only two options that we have this morning, Lord. We know that you are glorified in the salvation of sinners. And so we ask that you would do your perfect work in each one of our hearts today. Whatever it is, you know the need that your Holy Spirit would be working in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.